0: IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes,
1: the rules have changed. The rules have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, August 1st, 2009. This week, 2008, I'm a year ahead of myself here, Cliff. (laughs) (laughs) This week, episode 91 comes to you from beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes, or Radio Joe, and here with me in the studio is the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. It's always a pleasure, Cliff. My pleasure, Cliff. Good to be back in the controls here. And at the controls, we've got the wingman, Chris Boisel.
2: Good afternoon,
1: everyone. Good day. We've also got our technical director. He'll be joining us here at the halfway point to ask some questions. Today's segments include the microband trivia question. We've got Kevin Kennedy, who is the manager of the Environmental Health Program at Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City. We're going to take a little break at uh, halftime, do a couple news updates. Then we'll go back with Kevin and we'll finish up with the round table where we bring everybody back in to round things up. We're going to have part two today of our home health assessment series. Part one was with Dr. Sublette, and today we've got Kevin Kennedy who actually goes out and does these projects and uh, is the field man and also the manager for the environmental health program. So we're really looking forward to that. Before we get started, we have to thank our sponsors, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com.
0: Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at
1: ieconnections.com. DryEase Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. DryEase is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, for restoration and abatement
0: contractor shop at J-O-N-D-O-N.com. All right. To
1: contact the show, you can call 724-444-7444. Our show ID is 1547 1547- and now all you have to do is press the number one to join the show. You can also stream the show through the Internet with or without downloading the shoe software. And if you want to find us, you can go to www.iaqradio.com. There's a link there that says go to the show, click on that, and it'll take you to our site. We appreciate suggestions. We'll answer questions and take requests if you email us at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com or cliff. Zlotnik at unsmoke.com. Don't forget you can get your IICRC continuing education credits or IAQ council renewal credits by emailing me and requesting a quiz. And don't forget, you've got to email me and request the quiz. We had a little mix-up on that this week, but we got the gentleman through it, and uh, he will get his renewal credits and get his certification renewed. Again, you can email me at joe.hughes, that's H-U-G-H-E-S, at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit that IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. I'm going to turn it over to the Z-Man for today's microband trivia question.
0: Thanks, Joe. you play that accompanying music so well. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Congratulations go out to Matt Fredrickson of Clark Seif Clark Inc. for answering last week's microband trivia question. We were looking for the screen occupation that were shared by two actors, Woody Allen and Ronald Reagan. And in deference to last week's guest, that occupation was insurance adjuster. The trivia question for August 1st, 2008. We're looking for the original meaning of the word asthma. What was the original meaning of the word asthma? Back to
1: you, Joe. All right. Thank you, Cliff. Looks like Matt's, uh, I think he may be the all-time reigning champion now. I think it? so. We, we had a couple of really good players early on, and uh, I think Matt has eclipsed them. And uh, we'll be getting out some prizes to Matt here. In the near future. All right, let's get uh, on with Mr. Kennedy's introduction here. Kevin is is an environmental hygienist and is the manager for the Environmental Health Program at Children's Mercy Hospitals and Clinics in Kansas City, Missouri. The program performs research, training, education, and patient-based services in indoor environmental health. Environmental health staff performs environmental assessments in homes, schools, clinics, and childcare centers throughout the region served by the hospital. Kevin has been involved in the environmental science and industrial hygiene chemistry and consulting for over 20 years. He has a bachelor's degree in natural history and environmental science from the University of Kansas. He's a certified indoor environmental consultant through the IAQ Council, and is currently one of the instructors for the National Center for Healthy Housing Healthy Home Practitioner Training Program. He has also been certified to teach high school science and worked previously as a restoration carpenter and cabinet maker. I think we've got some intro music for Kevin. All right, Kevin. Hello, Kevin. How are you with us?
3: <laughs> That's great. Yes, that was. Where did you find that? That was fantastic. Uh, uh, uh,
0: we'll list. Uh, we'll list the credits. Uh, actually, it's. Uh, it's. What's the song, Chris? Uh, I've got asthma. I've got asthma by Little Dolls. Or toy Toy dolls. Toy dolls. Yeah, we found that on the Internet. You can download it for 99 cents, and we'll give them credit at the end of the show. There you go. It'll be
1: on our website. (laughs) I got asthma. I'll have to look for that. Yeah, that's great. Well, anyway, Kevin, it's great to have you here. We met down at the um, IAQA conference where there was a nice session on these, um, I guess, home health assessment programs and we had Dr. Sublet on a couple weeks ago to uh, talk about the medical side of things. We wanted to bring you in to discuss the actual field application here and how, how you go out and um, investigate these issues. Before we do, uh, let's talk a little bit about how you got started at Children's Mercy Hospital, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about the program. I, I, it seems to me a little unusual that they even have a program where people will go out and do these assessments.
3: Well, you're right. it is unusual in the country. There are not uh, very many uh, hospitals or uh, large uh, medical institutions that have uh, an environmental health program that is affiliated with its allergy asthma immunology department. More often, environmental health is affiliated with toxicology or with uh, some other kind of more classic uh, environmental exposures. Um, my background as you. Said in the intro is was in environmental science and industrial hygiene, and then uh, about ten. Well, I've been involved with Children's Mercy since 2001, but uh, about 10 years ago, Dr. Jay Portnoy, section manager for uh, Children's Mercy Hospital's asthma allergy immunology section, had patients that had asthma. Uh, asthma is a chronic respiratory disease and involves a lot of management of the asthma, and his patients. Uh, he was having difficulty managing their asthma uh, through regular medical therapy. And uh, as he knew and as uh, your listeners will learn if they don't know already through this program, asthma is an environmental disease, so it uh, can certainly be impacted uh, and uh, can be significantly impacted by what you're exposed to in your environment on a day-to-day basis. And what he found was in these homes uh, of his patients, their, the patient's uh, asthma was very poorly managed. He had them on all the medications he could have them on, and it still wasn't making a difference. He knew there was the potential for the home being involved, and he went out and hired a consultant, an industrial hygienist, to go into these homes and collect uh, information and samples and evaluate, and sure enough, found environmental problems in these homes that were exacerbating the symptoms of these children and making it very difficult for their families to manage their child's chronic disease. So from that, he was able to leverage community resources for some of these families and help get some repairs and some changes made to the home. Improving the home ended up significantly improving the symptoms of these children. They didn't need the medicine nearly as often, and he found that to be a very valuable tool uh, to add to his uh, bag of of. Therapy and other tricks that he might offer to his patients and uh, started to use uh, a consultant on a part-time basis, and that grew into a half-time position for the hospital with someone going routinely to visit uh, the patients with more complicated uh, asthma symptoms. And uh, then in 2001, I was hired as the first full-time person to serve in that position with the specific uh objective given to me to try to expand the program and uh, get more involved in the community, develop a systematic approach to assessing environmental problems in homes that might affect respiratory diseases, especially asthma, and then expanding that into um, education programs and then into schools where, uh, as many of your listeners probably know, there are all sorts of air quality issues uh, related to uh, the schools across our country. And that's where we are today. We have four components of our program, four focuses, uh, as you might expect. One is families and children. We are a children's hospital, so we are focused on uh, children's health and the impact of uh, the environment on uh, respiratory diseases and allergy diseases in children. We have a schools program that we call School IEQ, or Indoor Environmental Quality, and we work with, train, educate, consult with schools in developing an indoor environmental management program for all their schools. And then we have a provider education program where we work with uh, local health care providers and uh, their clinics and train uh, their staff on the latest information about asthma and about uh, environmental health. And then finally, we have a community-based program. That's where the training piece that you mentioned, we are a training center for the National Center for Healthy Housing and teach their Essentials for Healthy Home Practitioners course and are looking at uh, Doing additional courses for them, as well as our own uh, training courses we do here in the region on asthma, on creating a healthy home, on uh, a whole variety of indoor environmental health issues that uh, families, professionals, that anybody who's involved in the industry should should know something about. If we can help,
0: Kevin, is asthma an equal opportunity
3: illness? Well, that's an interesting way to describe it. Uh, Uh, It certainly doesn't, uh, it's a disease so it doesn't care who uh, it impacts and the problem is it doesn't just impact the person that has asthma. Uh, uh, What people may not know is it's one of the most common chronic diseases in the country and uh, number one among kids. It's one of the most common reasons uh, kids visit an emergency department or are hospitalized. Uh, In Kansas City for example, 10% of adults and children in Kansas City have asthma, Uh, 10%, 1 in 10. In some of the communities that we visit, more of the urban communities, it uh, affects uh, 15% of the population. And in some of the schools we visit, as many as 25%, 1 in 4 of the kids in a given school uh, that we work with may have asthma. Sadly, uh, there are racial disparities, so uh, it's more commonly found in African-Americans and Hispanics. Uh, In some urban communities, it's as high as 16% uh, for African-American males. So uh, it, it certainly has that disparity, so it's not totally equal, but it is equal in the burden that it causes not just to the child or to the patient, but to all those people around it, because it's a chronic disease, it's, a, it, it's a, the response of your airways to what you're exposed to. There's a genetic component, and probably Dr. Sablet discussed that, but um, the key is that there is a, a significant environmental component, and it, it varies from person to person what you're sensitive to or what things cause your airways to react So they call these things asthma triggers, and there are some classic asthma triggers that you might expect. Those would be um, for kids. It's it's certainly the common colds and viruses, but it's also uh, allergens. Uh, If they have an allergy, they can certainly uh, have it flare up their asthma symptoms, but also environmental tobacco smoke. Uh, the number one indoor air pollutant uh, is certainly been shown to uh, exacerbate asthma symptoms, especially in young children. Uh, Differential air temperature, uh, pet dander, roach dander, mouse or rodent dander, uh, all of those would be allergens, but also even changes in humidity, um, emotional stress, uh, exercise or exertion. There's a whole bunch of, of things that are different triggers but what we're also finding, especially with kids, is that there are a lot of uh, other chemicals that are potential culprits, and the, the data is certainly getting stronger on um, exposure to higher concentrations of nitrogen oxides, combustion byproduct, to perfumes or fragrance chemicals, to um, formaldehyde. There There's a, a loose association that the data is not... Strong yet, but there certainly uh, seems to be some kind of, of undefined connection. But also just uh, uh, any kind of volatile organic compounds in the air, uh, there seems to be, depending on the, the type of compound, any compound that can cause a upper respiratory irritation, there's the potential uh, for uh, sensitization and then uh, exacerbation of, of symptoms because they, once you've irritated uh, the respiratory system, then uh, you can have a, a cascading effect.
1: What, now, as far as your current position, how is that funded? I mean, it seems unusual to even have that type of position.
3: Well, uh, I am fortunate enough to work for a hospital that is a not-for-profit hospital um, with, that has uh, a mission of serving uh, the entire community, and serving the children of the Kansas City region without regard for their ability to pay. And uh, through that, we certainly uh, charge fees for our services, but um, we work with families uh, through financial counselors to try to make the cost of what we're uh, providing, the service we're providing, as reasonable as possible. We ask uh, health insurance providers to reimburse us for these services because um, what we have found and what other uh, programs have found around the country is that uh, it is actually uh, more uh, economically cost effective to uh, pay the small uh, cost of an assessment and even the interventions that might be done in a home uh, to, to pay that in relation to or in comparison to the high cost of hospitalization or emergency visits or medication use or doctor visits and uh previously we you were talking about it being an equal opportunity illness and i said it affects more than just the child well there, there's those indirect costs as well because if you have a child with this chronic disease then that means that if the child stays home from school then the parents are staying home and uh, parents have told us, and lots of literature certainly shows, that there's a real psychosocial effect of asthma. It it really affects the whole family network and the uh, the ability of a family to have a normal, productive life. So you have that indirect impact, and you have to factor that cost into the total cost of the burden to the family. So if you take all of those costs and put them together, you can see that the cost of an assessment is is relatively low compared to all those other costs that you're trying to help save a family that leads to a good question
0: for cliff yeah Yeah. kevin if i had the means to pay in full for one of these assessments approximately how much would it cost
3: well in our case we charge right around 300 to 350 dollars for the visit to the home and that includes all of our on-site equipment and that includes uh, a a visual assessment of the home and that we break that into two visits. One is the initial visit to uh, walk through the home with the family and look at uh, the the visual conditions of the home and then a follow-up where we return after we have um, taken all of our visual assessment, our environmental measurements. We might collect some environmental samples, but that's a separate cost. But in that 300, we include the environmental measurements and then the report. And we come back, we follow up with a second visit, sit down with the family, and walk through the results of our report and the, the issues that we found in their home and what actions we recommend for trying to resolve those issues and improve the overall indoor environmental health of their home. No, we so talked those about go, go the components are included. Okay. We talked a little say, bit about that.
1: Okay. I'm sorry. No, no. We talked a little bit about that at the conference and that $350 is, uh, probably about one fifth of what it would cost to have a typical indoor environmental consultant come out and do this type of report that you've shown me. is that, is that, we were talking between $1,000 and 2000 Do you recall that?
3: Um, me specifically, no, I don't recall that. Okay, maybe it was Luke. Okay, I
1: must have been talking yeah, it about Luke. Yeah, might have been
3: with my, one of my colleagues, Luke. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah, we were talking yeah. about how a typical consultant, an indoor, we had three or four of them with us at the time, and uh-huh. they looked at some of the report information and talked to you about the types of environmental assessments you do and they said that would be, you know, one thousand dollars or more uh to do that in the public sector, I guess. So I I think a lot of it really depends on
0: volume. You know, it's interesting. I had a commercial building inspection done a couple of weeks ago. And I mean this guy was all over the roof. I mean he was there for half a day, it was all over the roof. He had different instruments. I ended up getting a phenomenal report, you know, it's probably 50 pages, all these color pictures, all these recommendations, and they had to make two trips as well, because I wanted a radon test as well, and it was $450, and this company has, I think, four or five inspectors, and we actually had inspectors from that same firm on here before, so I think it's one of those things, Jeff, we get in the volume of doing it, and you know, people can kind of crank these things out. And they can do three or four a day. Uh, you know, might be able to get the cost down.
1: Well, that's a good question, Kevin. How many can you do a day?
3: Well, in our case, we spend roughly between two and three hours in a home. Now, when we go to a home, we, as I said, we, for that three hundred bucks, we're doing a visual assessment and on-site measurements. If there are samples that we want to collect and have analyzed, that's an additional cost above and beyond that. So when we go to a home, generally it's two hours, but if we find uh, more significant environmental problems and we believe that we need to collect some samples, then that just adds a little bit more labor to it. So it's generally two to three hours per assessment. Then you have travel time there and back and then just some of your bureaucracy once you return with the samples and all the documentation etc. Uh, downloading of data you've got to add some of that time in there as well so probably in our case we couldn't do more than two per day okay now
1: you talk about the measurements you take let's just call that simple diagnostics and then complex diagnostics would be actually having to take some samples that need to go to a laboratory as far as simple diagnostics what is the typical array of simple diagnostics you would do as a baseline
3: study? In, in our case, the, the simple diagnostics that we do include, um, some of it is driven by the, the visual assessment. So if, if we're seeing evidence of moisture stains or uh, active moisture leaks or something, then, then we're going to do a little bit of diagnostics uh, just right there at the home looking at what are the sources of this moisture, if we can pinpoint it, maybe using a moisture meter to, for as a diagnostic tool for that. We bring an air velocity meter and we measure the air flow coming out of supply vents and return vents and calculate the volume of individual rooms to try to calculate the actual air changes per hour for individual rooms, but also to make sure that there is adequate uh, fresh air or supply air being delivered say to a child's room and as part of that the visual assessment would be we make sure that they don't have the vents covered or blocked or that they even understand what a supply vent is and what a return vent is and where they're located and and what the value of those are because uh, through our experience and we've been in hundreds of homes A a, a large number of families don't understand some of the basic uh, components of their home and the purpose and function of those components. But uh, we also would collect the comfort indices, temperature, humidity, carbon dioxide. And then we also take laser particle counters and uh, do particle counts. If we know prior to going to the home that there are smokers in the home, we may bring our ultrafine particle counter and collect ultrafine particle counts to see if uh, we see any uh, obvious evidence of the presence of the ultrafine particles. What we have found is by having uh, some of this data that we can sit down and talk with families about specifically what we've seen in their homes, if you have that data to support um, your discussion of the issues you've seen in a home and about the impact of, for example, environmental tobacco smoke on their child's asthma, uh, it's a very powerful uh, part of your discussion in in giving them uh, real data that shows that it's there, that it's really having the effect on, on their child and they really need to think about um, changing some of their behaviors because of the impact on their child.
0: What are the domains of an environmental assessment, Kevin?
3: That's a good question. We actually uh, divide our environmental assessment of each room into domains. We categorize it into five domains, uh, airflow and ventilation, allergens and dust, moisture control, chemical exposure, and then safety and injury prevention we include safety and injury prevention because uh, if you look at uh, the CDC or HUD or EPA's uh, work on healthy homes programs uh, especially with HUD and their lead hazard control healthy home programs there's really an effort to look at comprehensive uh, issues in homes so so when we're in those homes trying to evaluate these other domains we include that safety and injury prevention so we look specifically at categorizing Uh, the different elements because those are different factors and can play a different role in what the problems are in a home. So airflow and ventilation is certainly a factor that can affect the pathways of exposure and the sources of environmental problems. Allergens and dust would be the specific allergens and dust themselves, but also the factors that can affect that. if They have a lot of carpeting, a lot of upholstered furniture. In a kid's room, you might have a lot of stuffed animals. You might have a lot of uh, blankets, uh, different things that can be uh, reservoirs for allergens, specifically for uh, dust mites, for example. Um, Clutter, You, you need to talk to families about just the level of debris and trash and just stuff, books, papers, all of those can be reservoirs for not only microorganisms but also just moisture Uh, if you have all of this stuff in a room and you have a chronically damp home then the two work together to to create uh, environmental conditions that certainly research has showed uh, chronically damp indoor environments are just not healthy and with all those reservoirs it just exacerbates the level of dampness that's there and then with chemical exposure we're looking In that category, we include things like lead paint. If we do look in a a child's bedroom and we see evidence of peeling paint and we know it's an older home, then we're going to want to try to educate the family about what lead-based paint is, why lead is a hazard. So when we walk through a home and look at these different domains, we're, we're recognizing all the potential environmental hazards that may be there. We want to make sure that the parents are aware of the hazard. So you might, you know, we talked initially about asthma and we're there about an asthma home visit, but what we have found is that we have to look more comprehensively. We can't simply go in and look at what are called the asthma triggers and look at dust mites, look for uh, roaches or evidence of rodents and, and stop at that point We feel you have to look more comprehensively at uh, how air circulates through the home, what uh, are the conditions uh, that have led to moisture problems, and the moisture problems certainly exacerbate all of the, the classic asthma trigger problems. If you've got a lot of moisture, then you're going to have more dust mites. If you have more moisture, then the chance for pests like rodents and roaches to thrive is certainly greater. Now, in, in many of the homes that uh, that uh, your uh, consultants might work for would be maybe in some higher uh, socioeconomic groups, whereas we work in all socioeconomic sectors. So a lot of the homes we work in are, are in the urban core or might be in multifamily housing, and that's where we might see more of these pest problems. There's certainly a, a disparity as far as the presence of some of these pests. You
1: went. uh, Let me let uh, me real quick. You summarized five, and I missed one. You had airflow and ventilation, allergens and dust, chemical exposure. I missed number four.
3: Moisture control.
1: Moisture, and you did talk about that. Okay, great. Cliff, go ahead. Um, I I guess two
0: things, uh, two questions. Is there a special software program that you use or that's available to do this? And I guess the second question is, in terms of mitigation work, uh, if someone cannot afford to pay, you know, for the entire assessment themselves, you know, where on earth do they get the money to pay for what may be necessary in terms of mitigation?
3: Well, those are excellent questions. I was so interested in the second one there. Can you repeat the first one? Oh, sure. Uh,
0: Actually, do you want to do the second one first? Well, let's let's
1: do it this way. Do the first one, then we'll take a short break and we'll come back. Because the second one, I think, will take a little longer. Okay. The
0: the, the first one was, do you use a software program? Yes. Okay.
3: Um, Well, what... It's important for people to know is that there, over the years, there have been a variety of visual assessment tools that have been developed and that are out there for use. So there's probably about 10 or 12 different uh, visual assessment tools that uh, have been developed by various groups. Most of them available free to use. In our case, uh, we looked at uh, most of those uh, and believed that we wanted to take a slightly different approach towards uh, how we assess things, and that's where those five domains came from. We tried to categorize because most of the assessment tools ask uh, yes, no questions. Is this present, Yes or no? Is this present? Yes or no? So uh, are uh, um, are there upholstered chairs present in a child's bedroom? Yes or no? Is there carpeting present, yes or no? In our case, we uh, assess and rate it and provide a score, so we ask uh, questions like, "Are there uh, air ducts and are they open and providing air?" and then we rate that uh, uh, give it a score and then in each of those categories we generate a mean score so in each of those five domains in a child's room, we create a, a an assessment score. The higher the score, the better, because what we have found uh, through our work with families is they can connect very well with the score, and then we also color-code it, red, yellow, or green. So the, if it's a real low score, they get it's color-coded red. If it's a medium score, it's yellow. If it's If it's a good high score, they're doing well with this particular domain, then it would be color-coded green. So, our report has different levels of understanding so that families that may not have a real high literacy rate can look at the report and just from some of the visual information to get a sense of where the potential concerns are, and then we can talk more specifically about that part of the report. We currently uh, do that ourselves in an Excel uh, workbook that we've created, and we're in the middle of converting that into a sql database application that then our goal would be to be able to distribute that we're also developing a uh, web-based tool uh, that any homeowner uh, because we would like to have homeowners be able to look at their own homes not just limit this to the families we work with but give them a simple tool that they can use to evaluate and score their own home and how well they're doing as far as the, the indoor environment and the health of their indoor environment
1: Great. Let's, uh, let's take our little break here, and then we're going to come back and go to that second question. Okay. Before we go back to the second half of the show, we want to make sure we stop and thank our sponsors, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com.
0: Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at
1: ieconnections.com. DryEase Products, providing equipment for drying water damaged homes and buildings. DryEase is first in drying solutions at DRI-EAZ.com. John Don Products, where restoration
0: and abatement contractors shop at J-O-N-D-O-N.com.
1: All right, in just a moment, we're going to bring our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, on to see if he has any comments or questions from the first half. But before we do, Cliff's got a little news item I think he'd like to present to the listeners oh sure i I can do that
0: Uh, iaq radio received early this morning a press release Uh, the press release came from the restoration india industry association Uh, i can read it joe for immediate release august 1st 2008 nta exploratory meeting heads of agreement hoa statement The Restoration Industry Association hosted a one-day meeting of prominent industry individuals on Thursday, July 24, 2008, in an effort to create an open dialogue for the betterment and advancement of the cleaning, restoration, and remediation industry. While the participating individuals have affiliations with various industry associations, they paid their own expenses for the meeting and did not formally represent any group, but rather the best interests of the industry as a whole from their various professional perspectives. The meeting was held at the Sheridan Four Points Hotel near BWI Airport near Baltimore, Maryland. The architects of the meeting were Craig Kursemeyer, WLS, Wausau, Wisconsin, and G. Pete Consigli, CRWLS of Sun City Center, Florida. Representing the host organization was Don Manger, executive director of the RIA. In attendance were other prominent industry individuals listed in alphabetical order. Rusty Amarante, CR from Exton, Pennsylvania, Gary Glenn from Abilene, Texas, Brian O'Hallock, CRS from Seattle, Washington, Dan Taylor from Lynchburg, Virginia, Greg Greg Treguero from Escondido, California, and Cliff Slotnick from Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. Charles Chuck Rumbarger, CAE, a prominent association industry executive based in Potomac, Maryland, was retained by the host RIA to facilitate the meeting discussion and assist the group in developing a heads of agreement statement. An HOA is a non binding document used to outline key issues and relative meeting points, normally serving as a precursor to the development of a memorandum of understanding or an MOU. The meeting attendees unanimously agreed to memorialize key points of Rumbarger's introductory comments, which served as the basis for the facilitated discussion that followed. Rumbarger's advice for participants included that associations are a creation of law, and to be legally compliant, they must conform in descending priority to the authorities of first- the laws of the land. Second, the association's bylaws, which are a secondary law controlling the organization specifically. Third, the board of directors, which is delegated authority by the voting members in accordance with the bylaws for the purpose of creating policies governing the association. Fourth, Robert's rules of order to manage governance issues not addressed in public laws, bylaws, or policies of the association. Fifth, the executive committee, if any, to act in accordance with authority delegated by the board of directors. And sixth, individual agents of the organization, such as officers, directors, or others who have been delegated specific authority by either the bylaws or the board of directors. Additional issues that Rumbarger addressed for the group included, among others, organizational transitions, aggregation of resources, and interorganizational cooperation. According to Craig Kersemeyer, quote, for many of us, Chuck's presentation was an eye-opening primer on nonprofit governance, unquote. Consensus statement. The group unanimously agrees that they shall promote industry collaboration and exploring mutually beneficial opportunities in the present and future within their spheres of influence. The group sees value in continuing discussions and expanding the dialogue that commenced on July 24th quote it was an enlightening and energizing disqu- discussion that brought out many of the opportunities and challenges facing both the industry and association in serving their constituents unquote concluded don manger just prior to the adjournment note the meeting architects agreed to utilize RAA's director of communications Patricia L. Harmon as the media liaison for the meeting. The group unanimously agree that no other statements, comments, or communication will represent the collective opinion of the meeting
1: participants. No further comments will be issued at this time. Back to you, Joe. All right, Cliff, sounds like uh, we got some Things shaking in the uh, restoration industry. Always trying to keep people up to date here. Absolutely. All right. Let's bring our technical director back in, Dr. Dietrich Wow, and see if he has any questions or comments on the first half. Hello, Hello, Dieter. Can you hear me? We can hear you just great. How are you? I am just fine. Good. Any comments, questions?
2: Oh, absolutely. I almost had a heart attack when I heard that there was a not-for-profit hospital. I didn't think that those things could possibly exist.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> but I, I always learned something. <laughs> Uh that's like, you know, a not for profit oil company or something like that. Right. Uh anyway, um I I hope that my former employer, the good old Bayer Chemical Corporation, didn't stink up uh downtown um Kansas City, uh, Kansas City again. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
2: uh, they they make a nasty chemical over there, it's called it's called uh Mercaptans. And you can smell a Mercaptan I think in like the a, parts
0: per billion. like skunks. Yeah. Yeah.
2: But I have, and it still bothers me until today. I grew up in Germany. I did not ever hear the word asthma. When I, and I'm 70 years old now, so this is you know, 55 years ago or something like this, when I was a teenager or something, yeah, in, in, in that range. I didn't, know, I didn't know how to spell the word asthma. I didn't know what asthma was because, quote, nobody had asthma. Is there any indication? Is there? Is there a? Do we know why people all of a sudden have asthma and breathing difficulties? That is the one thing that I'm 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 looking for, and I said, boy, I always wanted to ask that question, and I ask it a thousand times, and nobody. We we really don't. I don't think. I don't think we really know what the heck is happening.
3: Kevin. Well, you're right. It's one of the great questions uh, going on and actually lots and lots of debate and lots and lots of uh, research looking into it. Uh, Both, is it uh, an immunological issue? Is it a genetic issue? Is there a genetic predisposition? Uh, Can we find genetic markers that tell us that an individual has a predisposition for developing the disease? And if so, what role does the environment play in that? Does the person have to be exposed to things? They have the genetic predisposition and they don't get asthma until they're exposed to their sensitizers or their triggers and then all of a sudden it's presented and expressed and then they have a expressed chronic disease that they have to try to manage for the rest of their lives. Or in some cases, uh, people appear to become less symptomatic as they uh, grow into adulthood. There's also the hygiene theory saying that if people are exposed to lots of things when they're younger, uh, then maybe uh, they're less sensitized when they're older, or the reverse, if we make our environments so clean when we're younger, then we're uh, exposed to things when we're older and become sensitized and then develop asthma out of that. Lots of of questions out there and uh, lots of Work being done to try to answer those questions. And, and, yeah,
2: and, and not not a heck of a lot of uh, good answers. I mean, this. I mean, I, I I understand how difficult it is, and you know, I I ask myself. I mean, uh, my my theory is, I grew up in a village with cows and dogs and cats and pigs running around, on a dirt road. There was no, no no blacktop uh, anywhere to be found. When it was not raining, it was dusty. I was in the fields. I worked at. I milked cows and I shoveled uh, horse manure and cow manure, <laughs> and all of those good things. And um, uh, we, you know, we didn't have. R- we had water outside, and apparently that environment was better for me than maybe a household today, where we have you know synthetic. Where I grew up with glass and wood. Yeah, there were there were no plastics at the time, none, zero. There was just it just didn't exist where I grew up, and I I ask myself, is it yeah our environment with all these synthetic materials that we have, and we sleep on it and we drive our cars in it. I mean there, you know, there is no more wood or glass in the well, there is glass in the windshield, but um, is is that is that perhaps the reason why people develop something like asthma, or for that matter, other allergies. That uh, asthma and allergy sometimes kind of works together.
3: Well, Well, certainly allergies and asthma do work together. People who have asthma and have an allergy to something, that allergy certainly can exacerbate their asthma symptoms. So that's a key component to uh, assessing someone's asthma severity is also doing allergy testing to see what kind of things are potential uh, asthma triggers for them, and you're right. What we know is that asthma is far more prevalent in first world countries, and in some third world countries, it doesn't exist at all. You and see that? You... This is this is fantastic to me. And as countries move up the socioeconomic ladder from third world to first world, you start to see an increase in the prevalence of that is, asthma.
2: That is incredibly interesting.
3: Now, one, one. Uh, uh, theory that a lot of people are looking at is, is it just the, is it the allergens alone, or is it the combination of allergens and industrial pollutants in the outside atmosphere, or is it the allergens in combination with, uh, as you said, the the products uh, in our modern homes and in our modern buildings? Uh, that's still to be determined. There's There's lots of research questions that are out there being asked and some research going on to try to answer those questions. Yeah,
2: I'm, I'm not up to date on that at all, but I mean, I, 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 are there are there grants out you know at, at, at Harvard and Johns Hopkins and, and Mayo Clinic and whatever you uh, to look at those those indicators to me it is fascinating. I would like to know why. Well that's a great. That's a great yeah.
1: question, Dieter, and in, in fact, it's one of the things we were kind of leading into. You let us into it really nicely. Oh, <laughs> um, and, and we, I, I, we appreciate that as always. Um, we're going to get back to the question on the, on the cost of the remediation, but let's let's hold off on that for a minute. Kevin, can you talk a little bit about what programs are available out there? Now, it does seem like there's quite a bit of money, you know, as being invested in. Um, researching this issue. Can you tell us, for the listeners, where the best information is available right now?
3: Boy, I don't know if I can tell you where the best information is, but I can certainly tell you that there is lots of uh, activity going on. Uh, If you want to look specifically at research activity, uh, I would suggest looking at uh, the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. Uh, They're the ones that establish the guidelines for asthma management. That's one. You could certainly look at the American College of Asthma, Allergy, Immunology, and the American Academy of Asthma, Allergy, Immunology, and their websites. Lots of research in those publications on uh, all of these different factors, the genetic component, the environmental component, and how the two may be integrated in some way. There uh, is some uh, National Institute of Health uh, initiatives for both basic research but also um, some of the more advanced issues related to asthma and asthma management so you can certainly go look at the national institute of health website lots of academic institutions across the country are involved in it uh... the national children's study which is uh... just starting to get underway as far as uh, uh, really getting a lot of sites across the country that's a study that's going to follow children from birth through 20 years of age, I believe. And right. asthma is certainly one of the diseases that they'll be looking at as part of that.
2: Great, yeah. Well, then also, go ahead. Let's, uh,
3: let's
1: bring Dieter back here in about five or 10 minutes. We're gonna start the roundup right around noon. How's that sound, Dieter? We'll do another extra no, five no, minutes. No
2: problem at all, okay. no
1: problem at all. Great. One of the other things we had talked about, Kevin, were some programs available through EPA.
3: Um, yeah. And, uh, well, that was the other thing I was going to point out, you're right.
1: Okay. You want to just touch on those so
3: that people are familiar with what's available there? Sure. Well, uh, we were talking there about some research programs, and those are trying to understand what's causing the disease, but the reality is, as we said, it's one of the more common chronic diseases out there, and it's affecting millions of Americans across the country. And in Kansas City, for example, it affects somewhere around 25 to 30,000 children and 80,000 adults just in our community alone. So the reality is people have a disease, and there's lots of effort to try to help people manage the disease. In about 2003, the EPA asked University of Michigan to help them look specifically at asthma programs across the country and uh, that was uh, what was called the Asthma Health Outcomes Project, and they were trying to look for the key elements of successful asthma programs and what made those uh, asthma programs successful and sustainable. And by successful, that means are they uh, were they able to help uh, families and patients effectively. And then from that study and looking at what those – keys to success were, the EPA developed uh, what I think is just a fantastic program, and uh, you should definitely look this up online. It's called Communities in Action for Asthma-Friendly Environments. It has the goal of mobilizing 1,000 communities across the United States in the delivery of high-quality asthma care. And they every May, they have a national asthma forum where they try to bring together the different uh, programs across the country and continue to look at what those key components are to a successful asthma program and how to better develop and refine those key components. And just to to mention those key drivers very quickly, the key drivers are uh, high-performing collaborations and partnerships between uh, asthma or community organizations on uh, fighting asthma, committed champions within each of those uh, asthma programs, integrating that with the healthcare services, so you have the healthcare plan working with healthcare providers, working with the community organizations, schools, etc. Tailored environmental interventions, so that would include the assessments and actually determining what kind of environmental interventions individual families might need, and then tying that all back together with the community, and that gets leads toward that uh, question that cliff asked earlier cliff about asked, mitigation yeah. yes uh and and that's where you've got to connect all of these components within a community so in our case uh, absolutely this has been one of our bigger frustrations we'll go visit with families provide intensive education, intensive case management over time, provide them a home assessment with very specific information about the issues we've seen in their home and what actions they should take. But unfortunately, we did not have the financial resources, and many of the families we work with don't have the financial resources to change their environment. So that's where having those connections within your community, those strong community ties to help families find resources to uh, make changes in their environment. Now, that might involve uh, helping them find a neighborhood association that has a small home repair program. It might involve helping them find as community development block grant money that's available, I believe, through HUD. There's also the HUD, Lead hazard Control and Healthy Homes programs. Those healthy homes programs provide a small amount of money that can be used to do some basic home repair and home improvement. And there are lots of nonprofits that uh, provide uh, some of these basic uh, interventions uh, just free of charge to try to help families and to be part of that community asthma coalition. But one of the most important things that people should know is that when you're working with families and you're making a recommendation about uh, interventions, all of the research shows you can't just hand a family uh, some allergen-proof covers for their bed and that's it. You can't just give them a vacuum cleaner and say vacuum more often. You can't just remove the carpet from a child's bedroom and think you've solved some kind of problem. It's a, it requires a multifaceted set of interventions. And that's why, uh, as we've said, we, when we go to a home, we're not just going to a child's bedroom or going to the place where a child might spend the most time, the most time in a home, and trying to see what the asthma triggers are, we're looking more comprehensively at the home because, in our work, we certainly see the home act as an entire system. So there are there are four essential things that we look at when we go and do a home assessment. That would be the medical history of the child. Why are we there? What's the medical history? Have we talked to the child's uh, primary care provider. What's going on with this child and why is it important that we go to their home? Then what are the sources of environmental hazards we're seeing in their home? Is it in the child's bedroom? Is it in the basement of the house? Is it in the kitchen? Where are these environmental contaminants that we're we're, uh, looking for? And if we do find them, what is the pathway of exposure? How is a child being exposed to the mold in the basement when they're spending most of their time up in the bedroom? So if you're looking at those pathways of exposure, the fourth thing is you're looking at the role the home systems play in that. What is the role the, the location of the child's room in relation to the basement plays? What is the role the furnace plays in delivering any potential contaminant from the basement to the child's house? What are the pressure dynamics going inso- going on inside that building envelope? What are some of the moisture factors that might exacerbate the conditions? So we try to look at all of those components and most people would consider our program uh, far more comprehensive in what in the kind of environmental problems we might look at in a home, but we believe that that's an important component in looking at all of those different factors that uh, are there to try to help improve the health of that child, and that's what our all. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Absolutely. Well,
0: I A follow well, up. I had a follow up. Do the reports that you produce make a hierarchical recommendation according to cost you know using the simplest least costly approaches
3: first exactly right what we recommend to families and and there's there's some psychosocial aspects to that we try to lay out and prioritize our issues and actions to where we're getting the biggest bang for the buck a we're making the biggest impact we can right away but also in many cases, we're trying to give them some simple, quick things that a family can do on their own uh, to try to change some conditions, simple things they might do to uh, improve the conditions in their home. And it could be something as simple as uh, removing a lot of the um, stuffed animals or something from a child's house. It it might be uh, something about the way they... uh, clean and maintain their house. We might recommend that they uh, vacuum far more often than they do or that they might steam clean an area and then vacuum it to try to knock down uh, the prevalence of uh, certain allergens in a home. So we we prioritize those things for them to give them some of the simplest actions they can take because part of it is trying to change behavior. A A lot of the exposure that goes on is because of how people occupy their space. And if we can get them to change their behaviors about how they occupy the space, it's going to reduce the contaminants that build up in the space, and that, in turn, reduces what they're exposed to. But, boy, getting them to change behavior is one of the hardest things that uh, you can do. It's a very slow process. And a lot of the studies show you don't do it with one visit, you don't do it with two visits, you do it with uh, multiple visits or multiple contacts with a family, and In our case, we're not recommending that the experts and consultants on environmental problems do that, but that they serve as a key component in the process. You have asthma educators or health educators that might work with a family over time, but they bring in indoor air quality experts like yourselves to give them important, valuable information about the environment that the family can use, that the physicians can use to try to help improve the condition for that family.
1: All right. Well, Kevin, we're going to what we call a roundup here. We're going to run over about five minutes, but can you stick with us? Oh, sure. Okay, great. We've got everybody unmuted. We're ready for the roundup. Let's go to Cliff first. Cliff, you have a final question or two. I,
0: I do, Joe. It's, it's probably a, a two-part question. Um, Kevin, which people would be best suited to be environmental health assessment survey takers, and what training is needed to get these people up to
3: snuff? Well, in my opinion, it would be certified indoor environmentalists or environmental consultants. I think people who have the kind of background you need to have that certification are ideally suited for it because you need a combination of a basic understanding of environmental science, a little bit of that being industrial hygiene, but I, we prefer to call it, in our case, environmental hygiene because industrial hygiene, you're talking about occupational exposure and workers' health and safety. Well, this isn't about uh, worker health and safety, it's about, uh, in our case, child health and safety, or or in the case of others, patient health and safety in their own homes. So having that background in environmental science, but also having a background in building science, because you are trying to evaluate the uh, environmental conditions in a building and what uh, the dynamics of the building itself uh, and what role they play in that environmental exposure. Uh, I myself have no background in healthcare. Uh, I don't see that as my role. My role is to uh, be the eyes, ears, and uh, nose of the, uh, of the physicians and the healthcare providers that I work with, to be out there in the environment, the expert uh, in evaluating the environment that can come back and bring them information about what that child is being exposed to so that they, as the experts in health, can figure out uh, what the best uh, medical therapy or best uh, health activity is for that child. So we try to work together in a partnership.
1: Okay. Let's go to Dr. Wild. Dieter, any follow-ups or uh, final comments?
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, that's very interesting. I will be, you, uh, I know that you know, I will be up in uh, in near Boston, in Westford, at uh, the get together uh, with the building engineers and architects uh, under uh, Joe Steeburek's uh, auspices, whatever. And uh, my topic is uh, filtration. And um, I, um, I know that you know that I do industrial ventilation. I did that for a long, long time. I never really was interested. I never ever had any calls for it. Yeah, home ventilation. But the thing is, that all our filters, all the filtration systems that we are using in our homes uh, do not protect you uh, uh, from an inhalation hazard. Uh, those are particles that are uh, 10 micrometers in diameter or less, aerodynamic equivalent diameter. Those are inhaled and deposited in the lung. The big ones don't bother me. They're sitting in the uh, in the nose and forget about it. I, that doesn't bother me. But I think... I think by with with us buttoning up the houses for uh, uh energy control and so on I think we are keeping a heck of a lot of irritants whatever they may be uh, uh inside the house and our filtration system in the house do not take care of those it just doesn't work that way and yeah we need we pr- preferably we would need a HEPA filter somewhere in our ventilation system. And I know that is expensive. It has to be monitored. It has to be exchanged. And uh, it's one of those things. But if we do what we are doing, and apparently we are on the wrong road yeah, for health and whatever you want to call it, uh, uh, I, uh, I, I, I see there's there, there got to be done uh, something done in that direction. Cliff, and uh, were,
1: go ahead, yeah, actually, and
2: Kev, yeah, and Kevin mentioned, you yeah, know, the, the the monitoring and so on. I said, yep, it's the fine particulate. It's not the big boys. We don't care about those. It's the little ones, like uh, sidestream smoking or something
0: like that. Cliff, I, I guess I wanted to ask you a question, Dieter. Uh, And, I mean, you probably know more about filtration than uh, most people still walking and and living. I I guess the question is, would you also be in favor of some sort of gas phase adsorption in houses to deal with fumes, to deal with VOCs?
2: You know, this seems to be something that... Absolutely. 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 If we would all live in what is that? Taipei's right? The Indians live in those, right? T-B's, we yeah, wouldn't T-B's. we wouldn't we didn't have we wouldn't have to worry about radon or anything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I that's yeah, I grew up I grew up in a village in southern Germany with exactly that, you know. There was no running water, there was no electricity, there was no gas. <laughs> we didn't have double insulated windows (laughs) or air conditioning systems are you kidding that's
0: nothing compared to (laughs) the
1: stories my dad told me (laughs) (laughs) well Kevin um, I just wanted to I've got a question and then I want to give you a chance to um, if there's anything we didn't cover to touch on that and give contact information for folks but we didn't really get a chance to talk about testing for allergens I'm curious, uh, as quick as we can, how often is that a part of your assessments and how important a role does that play?
3: Well, you mean as far as testing patients for allergens uh, or uh, testing the home? Testing the home. (laughs) Testing the home. Uh, In our case, because we're working with uh, kids with asthma and uh, through our interaction with the physicians, they may have and probably should have tested the children to see what they're allergic to. If they have and we have that information, we do recommend that they do that allergy testing. We use that as part of our development of the hypothesis for that particular home and what might be impacting that child's health. And that drives uh, what kind of test samples we might collect in a home. So based on our uh, interview with the family and our gather of information about their medical history and about what's going on in their home uh, we create a hypothesis. So we do our baseline home assessment that we talked about which is the on-site measurements but if based on our information gathering and the testing we find that they do have allergies then we'll collect allergen samples. We collect vacuum samples for dust and then we uh, we are fortunate that here at Children's Mercy we in our allergy research department we have the analytical capability to analyze samples for environmental allergens. There are uh, some labs, not enough, but there are certainly some labs across the country that will also do this allergen testing. Uh, Most of the time you're testing for specific environmental allergens, so you're looking at uh, dust mites, cockroach, you might be looking at rodent dander, cat dander, uh, dog dander, those would be the primary uh, environmental allergens and then Uh, you can certainly look for uh, proteins in the dust from mold and and just potential prevalence of mold based on uh, the analysis for the allergenic proteins. So
1: that's typically done as a result of the the doctor, the MD's um, report to you, and you work in cooperation with them.
3: Right, so if we... Uh, in working with them find that they tell us that this child is real allergic to dust mites, then we may uh, take a vacuum sample of the child's bedroom or of the child's bed specifically looking at the prevalence of dust mites. We also might take a sample of the room where they spend the most time, a family room, a living room, TV room, place where they spend a lot of their time and try to assess uh, the amount of the dust mite antigens in the, in the dust in those areas. Sure. Um, there are also kits available that you can get they are little simple colorimetric kits that come with all the components for taking a vacuum sample directly from a child's bed, for example, and uh, the kit has all the components for testing it right there in the field. So you could see whether it was, say, low, medium, or high level of uh, dust mite antigen in the actual dust collected off of a bed.
1: I think we actually have the one of the people who helped to develop that kit on the show down the road here. Let me just, no, uh, oh yeah before we finish, let me just ask two quick ones. Is there anything you'd like to add or anything we'd missed? And second, how can people contact you if uh, they have further questions?
3: Um. I think we've covered, because of the amount of time, I can't uh, think immediately of some things that uh, that we might have missed. I think you guys did a great job of coming up with some questions to cover the basic topic. I think one thing that uh, would be important for people to know is that uh, the uh, national guidelines for asthma recommend home assessments for asthma patients and that there is certainly a push across the country Uh, to get health plans to pay for some kind of a home visit. And right now about uh, 10 to 20 health plans found across the country actually reimburse for uh, some kind of a home visit for asthma patients. So the the people need to know that there are so many patients out there that have asthma that, that could benefit from a home visit that if you uh, if you are interested in doing this, uh, there's lots of potential for uh, being able to help people. And, and then in order to get a hold of me, yep. uh, you can get a hold of me at any time, either by uh, calling me directly at 816-235-5366, or anybody can email me at kkennedy@cmh.edu at and we'll certainly be able to, or try to help it any
1: way we can. Well, oh, I really appreciate that last uh, little comment you made. I know Cliff also uh, looked at me and said, you know, that's a great piece of information. And I guess he also had a quick question. Uh, how do they get reimbursed if these health health insurance companies are paying for this, at least some? Do they need a prescription from a doctor? Um, what types of reimbursements are there? Are they pretty reasonable?
3: They you need to have a physician involved there needs to be a diagnosis of asthma you have to substantiate that there is this asthma disease and that uh, as part of the management of the disease you're asking for a home visit and then those health plans know that a home visit is one of the components for uh, asthma management so uh, the the fee i would be uh, billed directly to the uh, either to the physician who then can bill the health insurance company for it or it may be that you can even uh, develop a contractual relationship with a health insurance company where you provide uh, the home visits for their uh, patients that they manage so they may in conjunction with the health care providers, decide which patients need the home visits, and they would just simply contract with a professional to provide that service. Now, there are two, in my mind, and uh, I think out in the literature, there there are two levels of home visit. One that a lot of literature covers is, is a basic asthma education visit, and that would be, visiting the home by an asthma educator or a nurse or some kind of health educator to work with the family on basic understanding of the disease, the management of the disease, environmental factors affecting the disease. That's, that's a level one assessment. And then the next level would be the level two assessment where these are for more severe patients where there are specific uh, known environmental components that are exacerbating their Asthma and either causing them to be hospitalized or, or recurring visits to the emergency room. So, it, it, through uh, uh, communication with the healthcare providers or with the healthcare plan, um, IQA professionals might be uh, asked to do the more the level two assessments and a more careful assessment of the environment and environmental conditions in the environment.
1: Very good. Well, thank you, Kevin. I want to. First of all, thank you for joining us this week. And uh, let the listeners know we do hope to have one of the uh, home health educators on the program in the future. But uh, first again, I want to thank Kevin Kennedy for joining us here this week on IAQ Radio. I want to make sure that we thank our sponsors one more time, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections,
0: the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com.
1: DryEase Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. DryEase is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com.
0: And John Don Products, for restoration and abatement
1: contractor shop at j-o-n-d-o-n.com. All right, next week we're going to uh, do a little show on insurance issues. We're going to talk a little bit about how uh, consultants, remediators, water-damaged people, etc., can uh, evaluate their insurance and uh, talk a little bit about what insurance covers, what it doesn't cover. Looking for, forward to having uh, Brian McFarlane from Legends Insurance on the show. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks so much to my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Always a pleasure, Joe. The Wingman at the controls, Chris Boisel our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil, but most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. We set another record last week. Keep them coming, folks. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio.
3: This has been another IAQ Radio production.